Welcome to Indie Insider, the weekly show where we chat with video game industry professionals about their projects, their stories, their advice to others, and, of course, their thoughts on everything indie. I'm your host, Logan Schultz. It is finally 2017, and after a week off of the air, we are back with new episodes and exciting guests. Today, I'm sitting down with James Gortzman, CEO of PlayFab. PlayFab is a company that offers a complete back-end experience built exclusively for live games. James and I talk about how we got started and his time at PopCap, the differences between free-to-play and games as a service, and his advice for aspiring professionals. Before we get to the interview, however, a couple of quick notes. This show is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm working to help indie developers reach their goals and new audiences. The company also strives to offer unique, inspiring, and even educational services for developers, publishers, and gamers alike, which is why we get to bring this show to you. Speaking of which, be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the internet. And please, leave a review. If you'd like to be a part of the show and share your thoughts, questions, or even request a professional to bring on the podcast, send me an email at logan at blackshowmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider Podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Finally, special thanks to James for joining us on the show, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for allowing us to use his song, Going Higher, in the show. And now, the CEO of PlayFab, James Gwertzman. Welcome to Indie Insider. Today, I'm talking with James Gwertzman, the CEO of PlayFab. James, how's it going today? It's going great. It's a gorgeous day in Seattle, so thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. We are chatting on a chilly Wednesday. I'm here in Iowa. Um, how was, how's your week going? How, what's the middle of your week look like there at PlayFab? Well, it's uh, you know this is the, the holiday time when normally things would be kind of quiet, people getting ready for the break. Uh, but in fact, we're seeing, as always, a surge of games launching right before the holidays. And so we've been pretty busy just making sure everything runs smoothly as we continue to you know, wrap up our own year, as well as helping all of our customers get their games you know, up, and, up and live and make sure there's no issues. Right, of course. Well, I do want to talk about PlayFab. I think the, the work you guys do is pretty interesting. We haven't had anything quite like it on the podcast, so I'm excited to chat. But before we get there, I want to hear your superhero origin story. Tell me a little bit about James Gwertzman. Where do you come from? Yeah, so I, um, I grew up on the East Coast uh, in D.C. And then, and then New York City. And I got in the game sort of indirectly. I've, I've always loved playing games. I've always loved computers. Uh, but for me, it really came because I've always been especially fascinated by this intersection of art and technology. Uh, I remember as a, as a kid, even at like age seven or eight, being just fascinated by special effects for films. You know, remember those old TV shows like The Making of Star Wars or whatever? And uh, I remember, you know, buying these huge coffee table books on like ILM, even as a kid, and just being really interested <laughs> in, in how they do this. And so I, uh, I, I dreamed one day of becoming a Disney Imagineer. I thought maybe one day I'd be lucky enough to work at ILM. Uh, I was a member of my school stage crew. I did set design and light design, and I've always been interested in that in that in that intersection. Uh, I went off to college, majored in computer science. 
uh, but kept thinking about, about being more creative. But I made the mistake during college of working one summer uh, in an actual visual effects company, working on uh, a film visual effects. And it was okay. such a sweatshop that I, I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it completely ruined my, all my illusions. You know that, that phrase, don't meet your heroes? So I, it really ruined my illusions with, with visual effects. And I ended up kind of forgetting about arts, and I went off and I got a job at Microsoft out of college. And that was great. I learned a ton about how to build software. Uh, I was very involved in developing servers for back then it was MSN and eventually what became known as SharePoint. Uh, so I had a really solid grounding in technology, but, uh, but something was missing. And after a couple of years of doing that, I really started feeling the, the creative itch coming back. And I realized I missed the theater. I missed you know, the arts. And right around this time, this is in 2000, Microsoft was launching the Xbox. And I'd never considered getting into the games industry professionally before. But suddenly, with all these people at Microsoft talking about Xbox, I remember thinking, wait a minute, I've always loved playing games, why not make games? And so I, I, I started thinking about it seriously, and uh, I went off to E3 in 2000 with a friend, and the first day was pretty terrifying. You know, there's so many games at a show like E3. Mm-hmm. Day to yourself, you know, we'd be crazy to try to, it'd be like a lemming jumping off a cliff to try to do this ourselves. But by the second or third day, you start realizing a lot of the games are similar. Uh, and then I, I, I got to go to one of these kind of private suite parties in someone's hotel room where all the so-called gods of the industry were there. You know, I got to meet Tim Schafer and just a whole bunch of other really well-known uh, designers. And I realized, you know what, these, these guys aren't that smart. I mean, you know, not, it's not to say that in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a boasting way, but sort of, these are just guys, you know, good people. And I started saying, maybe, maybe we can do this. And so my friend and I uh, started, uh, I quit my job at Microsoft, and we started Escape Factory, my first game studio. And we were lucky enough to uh, uh, meet with Gabe Newell while we were kind of in Seattle, you know, just doing our homework, talking to different game companies. Okay. And he was uh, super friendly and, you know, basically said, well, you know, why don't, we're always looking for fr- folks to help us out here at Valve. Why don't we throw you some contract work? And so we ended up doing, uh, you know, my very first gig sort of as a skate factory was working with Valve for a whole year on building a Mario-style third-person action-adventure console game uh, using the Half-Life Source engine. Uh, and uh, that was a fascinating exercise. You know, I've always loved Mario 64. It's my favorite game. It happened sure. to be Gabe Newell's favorite game, at least at the time it was. Uh, and so I think, you know, Half-Life, of course, is Valve's first biggest success, and they became known for first-person shooters. But, uh, you know, he always wanted to do a console game, or more like more to the point, uh, a platformer. And so we, we, we worked on this together. It was super fun. And then out of the ashes, and then out of that, that project, uh, once that was over, we ended up uh, getting a, a project at Sierra, working on trying to bring uh, the Space Quest franchise back to life at Sierra in a platformer style, almost like Zelda meets Space Quest type uh, approach. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be a really, really fun project. Unfortunately, uh, Sierra t- didn't make it, and they had to shut a bunch of projects down, including us. And so there we were in 2003. Uh, you know, small studio uh, had just lost its first big contract. We didn't have anything else lined up, and so things were looking pretty bleak until uh, Alex and John at Wild Tangent kind of fed us a lifeline saying, hey, uh, we need some, some casual kind of retro arcade games built. Uh, maybe you guys can, can, can help us out. So we ended up building three or four of these sort of very simple casual games for Wild Tangent, uh, and they were so much fun to build 
you know, we'd spent three years building this giant console game and it had never shipped, but here we were in a space of six months building three or four games that not only shipped but became profitable for us. And so we said, you know, to heck with this console AAA space, let's go casual. And so we shut the whole thing down in, in 2003, started a new company called Sprout Games, specifically going after the uh, the casual games market. And sure. we were just really lucky, right place at the right time. You know, back then, uh, the PC casual game space was just starting to, to kind of grow quickly. We made it, our second game was a game called Feeding Frenzy that ended up being way more successful than we ever thought it would be. It was the second best-selling game of 2004 after Zuma, and oh, wow. uh, it got the attention of PopCap. And so after about a year of running uh, 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 Sprout Games, we ended up uh, getting acquired by PopCap in 2005, uh, which was our dream. We had always said it back at Sprout Games, we had this big bumper sticker on the wall, you know, WWPCD, what would PopCap do? And, uh, and so they were really our heroes. And when we joined PopCap, they had 30 guys. We were three or four. Um, and then at PopCap, we got to go our separate ways. So I became head of sales and biz dev. I went back to kind of the business side. Uh, my partners went into the studio. And uh, I then had a really fun eight-year run at PopCap. And then I had a chance to do a lot of different things. But most significantly, I had a chance to move to China in 2008 with my family to set up uh, PopCap's first Asia office. Because what had happened was I had... Um, I'd gone back to I'd gone to China uh, within the first year of joining PopCap just to kind of check out the the gaming industry in Asia, see the gaming scene there. And I was walking through a subway station and I heard the sounds of Zuma. And sure enough, people were playing Zuma. This woman was playing Zuma in in a subway station in Shanghai. I'm like, my God, people know our games. And the more <laughs> the more I started visiting, you know, internet cafes and and everywhere I looked, people were playing pirated versions of PopCap games. So I thought it was really kind of cool that people had found our content without us ever doing any localization or anything. But then at the same time, I also discovered free-to-play games for the first time. This is back, still back in 2005. And free-to-play was not yet a big thing here in North America, but mm -hmm. it was huge in Asia. Because of piracy, it was really the only way to make money was to give your games away for free, but make money by selling things in the game. And people were doing really creative stuff with these, these free-to-play games. And so I came back saying, hey, we should do free-to-play. Free-to-play is really cool. We should get into this. But at the time, it was there's a lot of skepticism that this would ever be anything in America. And so we realized the only way to ever really try this new business model out would be by moving and setting up shop in, 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 in Asia, which is what we did, did, did in 2008. So I set up shop in, in 2008. It was for PopCap's first ever free-to-play game studio. And our mission was in Asia for Asia. So build games, you know, taking advantage of all of PopCap's IP, uh, in these local markets. And so the most successful game we built was a free-to-play version of Plants vs. Zombies that became huge. It was the biggest game on Tencent's mobile game platform. And that uh, was just a ton of fun. Uh, I loved, you know, the energy of Asia, and I loved, uh, 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 you know, some of the, the, the experiments we tried there. But finally, in 2013, it was time to come back to, uh, to America. So I came back and uh, ended up leaving PopCap after. It had been a really fun run, but... You know, in, in the meantime, EA had bought PopCap, and, and I felt it was ready for a new, new, you know, something different. I spent six months at Code.org, uh, and then it was time for my next thing. And so when I was deciding what I wanted to do, the thing that really kept uh, kind of popping up my mind was uh, this notion of trying to help companies building free-to-play games. Because what, just to digress for a second, um, what I learned to PopCap building the studio in China uh, and then also watching my, my colleagues at PopCap in North America, and frankly, even my colleagues across all of EA, all of us were starting to experiment with now games as services, right? And what we discovered is that when a game is a service, when, when you have to now not just build a game and ship it and, and drink champagne and move on, which is what you know we'd always done, but once games became services, you had to be continually, you know, launching your game was just the beginning. 
uh, and, and is the beginning of essentially a marathon of having to continually maintain and operate and, and support this, this game you just launched. And that, that post-launch operations phase, um, it turns out, required sort of this ever-growing, ever more complex set of, of tools and technologies. And, and, and over in Shanghai, we built it all from scratch. Uh, you know, when PopCap launched its first free-to-play game for Facebook, uh, Jewel Blitz, we had to build everything from scratch. EA was building everything from scratch, and it was hard. These, you know, game teams are not usually used to building massive back-end server technology. And so um, it was the launch of EA's Simpsons Tapped Out in 2011, <laughs> I want to say, mm -hmm. that really kind of caught my attention, because EA launched this game, Simpsons Tapped Out, I think it was 2012. And it skyrocketed to the top of the charts. It became number one within a matter of hours. Uh, but then it promptly crashed. Now, the servers were not ready for the load. And so the game was, not only the servers crashed, but it was so bad that EA had to take the game off the, top, off the, the App Store entirely for four months while they completely rebuilt the entire back end and then relaunched it again in, in August of that year. And uh, this is just kind of incredulous to me that, that here's a billion dollar company that had launched a game and the service couldn't keep up. And that was the same year EA also launched uh, uh, the new SimCity game that had sort of also huge backend server problems. You know, right. Couldn't keep up with the load. And it just kind of reminded me like, wow, this is a hard problem. This is, this is not a solved problem, right? Building and maintaining backend technology for games to scale is, is hard. And, and that was really the inspiration behind PlayFab, which is let's build a company so that game teams don't have to keep building the same tech themselves over and over again, but we can build you know, a platform that every game team in the world can use to build and operate and then launch their game. Post and, and, um, and it's been fun. So that's, that's the background story. Tell me why you think free-to-play is such a big deal. You touched on it a little bit, but what is it that is so captivating for people? Well, okay, so let's separate. So there's free-to-play and there's game-as-a-service, um, and they're different okay. things. So game-as-a-service is a thing that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of most... Well, they, they, they serve different purposes. So running a game-as-a-service means you have an opportunity to, to essentially have an actual kind of ongoing relationship with your players that you don't typically get with a packaged game. When you build a game and put it in a box and sell it you know, in Walmart or whatever, you don't have any opportunity to kind of engage with your players once a game goes out the door. Mm -hmm. Because you, 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 know, you send it off into the ether somewhere and you know, maybe you can go to trade shows, you can go to packs, you can have forums, you know, but, but it's, it's not the same. Whereas when your game is a service and your players are logging in and you have an opportunity to sort of see what they're doing in your game, gather data on how they're playing it, you know, see exactly what they like and they don't like, and then make content updates and push content updates out continuously, uh, and do things like running live events or doing things like, um, you know, it's Halloween, so you can change the whole game for a week around Halloween time frame. Or things like, you know, having, you know, in-game sales. You can, you can sell items in the game and continually add new, new items to keep the game fresh. And you can have, you know, multiplayer features where players can play against each other and you can kind of watch how that's going and continually add new content. That ongoing relationship, I think, completely transforms as a game developer your ability to, to entertain your players. And if you look at the top 10 charts, it's really interesting. We have games now in the top 10 charts like, uh, like um, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Clash Royale or, or I guess, um, you know, uh, well, frankly, every Supercell game so far, but, you know, but, but <laughs> where, where these games have been in the top 10 charts for more than a year. In some cases, uh, they've been in the top 10 charts for like three years. And in the history of entertainment, I can't think of another time when we've ever had entertainment prop 
properties that have been in the top 10 for that long. I mean, like Thriller was maybe in the top 10 for 40 weeks or something, maybe shy of a year, right? But here we, or Star Wars is probably in the top 10 for like maybe a year. But here mm -hmm. we have a game that's been top 10 for three years. And it's because it's, it's a service. It's, it's being continually updated. And so I just think that's fascinating. I just, I just find that really kind of intriguing. Now, free-to-play is, is happens, once you have a game as a service, there's this nice side effect, which is you have the choice of a free-to-play business model. And it turns out, we, we found this at PopCap, that when you can give a game away for free, it's very hard to compete with that because players, whether they like it or not, players will play a free game. And if the choice is a game for free, for it's a game that you have to pay 60 bucks for, um, you'll get a lot more, you'll get a much bigger audience with the free game. And so now, free-to-play does not, has also some negative connotations, like it tends to, up until now, you've tended to see a fairly formulaic type of gameplay, where free-to-play implies maybe pay to win, or free-to-play implies, you know, cool features being locked, and you have to pay to unlock them, and, you know, there, there's, mm -hmm. I think we're still at the infancy of really trying to figure out free-to-play and, and where do we go with that. Um, they're not, but, but in my mind, free-to-play and, and games of service are not synonymous, and, um, and, and, and I think actually one of the, one of the, one of the motivations in creating PlayFab in the first place was we sort of believed that the barriers to competing with games as a service were so high that a lot of smaller, more creative indies couldn't compete, right? So you had these big, massive companies like Zynga, you know, with, with, with hundreds of millions of dollars invested in their, or at, at least tens of millions of dollars invested in building and, and operating their back-end infrastructures. Sure, and right. if you're a small indie, it's hard to compete with. And so I think my fear was my kids are going to grow up in a world where every game had sort of the same fairly formulaic type of, of model. And I didn't want that. And so I, I believe that one of the things we need to do at PlayFab was, was put, you know, a platform and, and, and back off, you know, back-end technologies that are every bit as good as what companies like Supercell and Ziga have and put those in the hands of, of you know, two and three person dev shops. And instead of, it's almost like arming the rebels, you know, let's give, let's give indies the same technologies that the big guys have uh, so that they can be creative and, and, and innovate in business models and innovate in what it means to compete when, when games are free. Well, I want to continue to pick your brain a little bit about um, free-to-play, uh, games of service, and uh, the indie video game scene as a whole, but we keep hitting on PlayFab, so why don't you go ahead and just tell me, what is PlayFab? You mentioned it, but give me the elevator pitch on what your company is. Yeah, so, okay, so, I mean, I, I did kind of mention it. If, if Once games become services, you have to have back-end server technology to run your game. And mm -hmm. so PlayFab provides a complete unified back-end platform for games that developers can use to build, launch, and then operate their games post-launch. And it's essentially, you can think of it as a, as a whole collection of different back-end building blocks that developers can use. So it includes technologies like logging in players, storing player data in a cloud, basic analytics, uh, content management for your game, things like in-game economy, the ability to build and manage a catalog and storing inventory for players. Uh, it includes things like uh, the ability to target, you know, to, to, to analyze your players, uh, send them messages, you know, and 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 you know, in-game marketing, uh, things like matchmaking, leaderboards. It's a whole collection of these sort of back-end services that otherwise you'd have to build for yourself. And it turns out this, you know, building and running a service like this is, is sort of deceptively simple. It seems on the service not that hard, but in practice, you know, it's it's it is a lot of gotchas. And so we've already, you know, found, been affected by, and now solved these gotchas. So customers don't have to. They can basically, you know, download our SDK, put it in their game. We have SDKs for 14 different 
platforms and engines, including Unity and you know Lua and and, and Unreal and all sorts of other other languages. Uh, you you know, and then you can basically focus on your game and not have to worry about the backend server technology. And we make sure that not only do these features work, but they'll also scale up to however many players you have. So you know, a lot of developers build a game, uh, they spend years of their life building it but they don't really plan ahead for success. And so if they're lucky enough to have you know, PewDiePie feature them you know, in a video or lucky enough to get a feature by Apple and they get this massive surge of traffic, right. all too often you'll see the same thing that happened at EA, which is the game will simply crash. The servers just won't handle it. And usually it's because the database is not designed to, the databases are finicky. They can look like they're working great, but they'll hit this point of load where they basically just fall off a cliff. And at that point, your game now is not going to work. And so, you know, we've designed everything to scale really smoothly and 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 prevent developers from being affected by these kinds of issues. When people find your company, if they find PlayFab, um, and they decide that it's right for their company, do you actually work with them kind of hands-on on that? Is it kind of just a, a system that they put into their game? Or what, is, what does that really look like? Do you have a hand in these projects? At yeah, all? no. So so the simplest answer is not really. So we okay. we are meant to be, we've designed our business to be, well, when, when, when we set the company up, we could have gone two ways, right? We could have been sort of a bespoke, almost like consulting company where you would hire us and we work very closely with you to build and provide, you know, a custom solution just for your game. And right. for sure, there are companies out there that kind of are like that. Um, but I, I wanted to, but, but, but typically that's not cost effective. That's typically only really available if you're, you know, focusing on big enterprise companies like, like Disney or EA or something. Right. And we wanted to, from the very beginning, kind of democratize what we were doing and make it available to everyone. And so we went the opposite path, which is going the self-serve path. So we wanted to build, you know, backend server technology that was so easy to use and so sort of well-documented and supported that someone could download our stuff you know, use it, launch a game, and start making money, and never even talk to us. And we basically succeeded in that. I mean, we have uh, we have uh, forums, and we have a Slack channel, and we have pretty active conversations on a kind of ongoing basis with a number of our developers. But the vast majority of the games that use PlayFab launch and never never talk to us at all. And so, as to us, that's a huge uh, kind of success that we've been able to get games to launch, and, and in many cases, actually do quite well without requiring a lot of handholding. I don't know what you can share necessarily, but are there any great success stories out there that you can tell us? I mean, tell me a little bit about uh, PlayFab's been around for a couple of years now, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll, sure. I, I think I, I can see where you're going. So, so we've been around now for a couple of years, right? We launched in, well, our service launched in August of 2014. So okay. it's been about two and a half years now since we since we first launched. Uh, and since then, we've been growing pretty steadily, kind of slowly but steadily. We've, we've got, as of today, we have about 400 live games. So that means there are 400 games out there that are you know, using services. We've got about another 1,000 or so that are in development that will presumably go live at some point in the next you know, few months. Um, and that number kind of keeps, keeps growing pretty steadily. We've got just some other stats. We've got about 26 million monthly active players. So across all those games, every month, about 26 million people log in. Uh, we've got about 120 million players now total in our database who have ever logged in, you know, on any of these games, mm-hmm. and we service on average about 4,000 uh, transactions per second. So every second it ticks by, you know, 4,000 API calls are being made back and forth between games we support and our backend. So that's that's wow. pretty cool. I love I love this notion that like you know you blink and all this stuff just happened while you weren't kind of paying attention. Um, so that's cool. Uh, so I get a sense of sort of the traction. In terms of success stories, probably the 
the game we've been most involved in, the company we've been most involved in, is a company called uh, Hyper Hippo up in Kelowna, BC. Uh, and they were kind of our first really big successful studio. So these guys had a game called Adventure Capitalist, which is a super awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah, super awesome uh, uh, idle. It's actually one of the first kind of really big idle clicker games. Uh, they had originally launched it on, uh, I think it was on Flash on Congregate was where it originally launched, and it took off without really everyone's kind of surprised. And so they then built versions of it for iOS, for Android, for Facebook, now for Steam and, and others. Um, but, but, but they didn't really have any backend for that game. So they were operating it, they were making some money, but not, frankly, anywhere near as, as, as well as it probably could have been given the, 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 its appeal. And so they came to us, or we came to them, and we started working together. And so we basically helped them get that game ported onto PlayFab. So they ended up starting to use more and more of our features. They started originally using us just for, I think, receipt validation. And then they added things like some cloud save game state, and the ability to run events. So if you play Adventure Capitalist, and for example, just back in you know Halloween, they had a whole Halloween event where you know they added new content and new levels just for Halloween, and that's all done on top of PlayFab. So from our tools, they're able to schedule you know changes and content to launch and push notifications to players and you know all sorts of of, of kind of service-oriented features that, that allow them to you know keep the audience they have more engaged. You know, obviously, you know, to be successful and, and, and survive, every game company has to make money. So it gives them the ability to kind of, you know, boost revenue with sales and promotions and things like that. Um, and they've been very, very happy with us. They've now got, they went from that one game, Adventure Capitalist. I think they've got five games now that they're all running on PlayFab, including the sequel, Adventure Communist, as well as a whole bunch of other, other games. Um, so that's probably our, our, our most successful kind of early game. Probably the best known company working with this is actually Rovio. So Rovio is using us for Angry Birds Seasons and also okay. just launched a new game, Bad Piggies, on our platform, uh, which are um, which are cool because, again, those are just really well-known titles. And they're using us, I think, for leaderboards and a few other features that they, uh, they wanted to add tournaments to these games, and they're using us for that stuff. Um, one of the most recent successes in the indie scene is a company called... Um, uh, Phoenix Labs out of Vancouver. They just announced a game called Dauntless uh, at, at That's the, right. the Video Game Awards a couple days ago. So Dauntless is actually powered by PlayFab. They're using us for server hosting, matchmaking, uh, all of the various backend services. And and we love Phoenix Labs because those guys are just awesome. They're super professional. You know, they really know what they're doing. They're using Unreal. In fact, they even helped us build our our Unreal SDK. We have a, a really good Unreal uh, Blueprint and Unreal uh, C++ SDK now that was uh, actually contributed to and largely by the guys at Phoenix Labs. So they were they've been great. Um, and so they're very professional. They know exactly what they want. They they've helped us, you know, build out some new features that we, or they gave us feedback that led to some new features we've added, which is really cool. Um, so we're really excited to see that game. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'd love to see that become the next League of Legends. Well, I'm listening to you and kind of talking about the companies you're working with. And my the next question I have to ask is, for the aspiring developers out there who are listening to you, who are thinking that what you're saying is just great, really exciting, how do they decide that PlayFab is the right program for them or the right platform for them to work with for their game? Sure. So, um, well, good question. I guess you would uh, come to our website. You would, you know, see what we do. Well, I guess the first thing is you need to know that you need us, right? Um, I think a lot of developers, our biggest issue is most developers probably don't even know what LiveOps is or that they need LiveOps. Um, and so, you know, our, our, one of our biggest challenges, frankly, is this kind of education that LiveOps matters and that what happens post-launch matters. Uh, and then uh, once 
studios kind of figure out that, yeah, this is in fact stuff they need to worry about, um, then comes deciding are you going to build it yourself from scratch or are you going to use a platform like PlayFab? And there's certainly, you know, you, the case can certainly be made uh, both ways, right? So the argument for building it yourself is that way you're not dependent on someone else. What if, God forbid, PlayFab went out of business? You'd be screwed. Uh, you know, what if you wanted something really unique and custom in your game and, and we don't support it? What do, what do you do then? Mm-hmm. There's certainly some, some reasons to build it yourself. The downside is, though, um, these are very hard people to hire. The kind of people who can build this stuff and do it well are really hard to hire. It's very expensive, which means a lot of your, especially if you have a small studio, a lot of your, your resources are going to go toward kind of building plumbing as opposed to the game itself. And arguably, I would, nowadays, more, more and more of what you need, we provide, which means it's available off the shelf, uh, in many cases, for free or very inexpensively. And so it's hard to justify building this sort of stuff yourself when we've got a company like PlayFab doing nothing but building and, and, and investing in and, and maintaining and supporting these kinds of features. Not just today, but also kind of future-proofing for the future. Because the other thing that happens a lot of times is companies will build this sort of stuff themselves, they'll launch it, the guy who builds it leaves, and then something like Facebook comes along with a big update or changes how everything works, and now suddenly you've got to go and jury-rig and retrofit your system to work with these new systems. And right. maybe the guy who built this gone away and, and and we and you know we're affected by this all the time so you know right now for example we've got a bug where uh or not a bug we've, we've got an issue where google changed how they want to do authentication on android and and then we have not yet we're in the process of of, of updating we've not yet rolled out the update for the new android systems and so it still works kind of mostly but but we know we're we, you know we, we need to get this update out there as soon as we can and that's an example where uh you know it's it's um, you know it was working fine, but but Android changed, and now we have to keep up with it. And that's that's pretty much the more systems you support, the more devices you're on, the more time you spend worrying about that kind of ongoing maintenance, as opposed to again focusing on making your game itself great. Well, this is James Gortzman talking about his company PlayFab, uh, and maybe you're listening and thinking this might be you know the right thing for you. This is a uh, Really interesting stuff. It's different than what we've heard about uh, on our previous episodes of Indie Insider. So, James, thank you for telling us about PlayFab and the work that you guys are doing. It's very exciting. Cool. Yeah, I, I've I've always personally loved being behind the scenes. You know, back when I mentioned that I used to do stage crew and set design, mm-hmm. light design, I've always loved being behind the scenes, supporting the actors, and kind of you know helping helping other people do great, awesome, creative things. And that is exactly the role I see us playing now. There's a there's a famous quote I love from um, from uh, John Lasseter at Pixar where he talks about the role of technology in animation. And he says, you know, technology, say art challenges technology, technology inspires the art. You know, this idea that his artists, you know, he, he describes in the context of a movie like, uh, like A Bug's Life, where the animators would come and say, hey, we won't have a lot of ants in the scene. And uh, the, 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 the computer guys would say, well, maybe we can put like maybe 10 ants in the scene. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. we have to have like a thousand ants in the scene. And the engineers are like, no, no, there's no way we could put a thousand ants on the screen. So that's an example of, of art challenging technology. But the technology guys go away and they figure out, well, maybe we can. And they'll come up with some breakthrough. And they'll go back and say, not only could we do a thousand ants in the scene, we've come up with a way to do a, a million ants in the scene. And that in turn then inspires the artist to say, well, if we can do a million ants, we could do these things we never even dreamed possible. And there's this great sort of feedback cycle there. And that's very much the feedback cycle I see here at PlayFab. We are constantly being challenged by the game studios we work with to do things we can't do today. And sometimes they seem hard or impossible, but oftentimes we find a way to do it and 
then roll out tools and turn inspire our customers. Like we just launched a feature just a couple weeks ago actually, which we're getting really, really positive feedback on. And it's a pretty basic feature. The feature is called, it's not a very sexy name, we call it bulk player segment actions. So what that means is <laughs> um, we have the ability in PlayFab to create what are called player segments. So a player segment is just a, a, a filtered set of your players. It could be all players greater than level 10. It could be all players who live in Russia and who have spent money. It could be all players who uh, have not logged in for more than 30 days. You know, whatever it is, you, you create this thing called a segment. And, uh, you know, and, and let's say you might have, I don't know, a million players in a particular segment. We now have this tool that allows you to go through and do some action on every player in that segment. So the action could be grant an item. It could be grant virtual currency. It could be send a push notification. Uh, or it could be run an arbitrary JavaScript function that you write against that player. And if you're and, and the JavaScript function can really do anything. The JavaScript function could do something like look up their score from a recent tournament and grant them an item based on a prize table, right? Or it could be something like um, let's say you rolled out a bug and you inadvertently ruined your economy and players have like 10x more revenue than you know gold coins than they should. You could write a function to go through and sort of clean that mess up by checking and rolling back their currency if necessary. So it's a pretty basic. You know, feature, but it's a really exciting kind of building block for the kind of live ops that we we see ourselves supporting for uh, for studios. Well, I appreciate the way you're talking about it, and, and some pretty inspiring stuff, including the quote. Um, and I want to latch onto that just a little bit. You talked a bit about uh, the challenge, right? You are somebody who has your finger on the pulse of the industry right now, working with these companies. What do you see in the indie video game scene? What are the trends that Playfab is watching. What do you see as the future of all of this? Um, that's a big question. No, no, no. yeah. I, it's funny because I just spent uh, I just spent a couple of days uh, holed up uh, in a remote hotel with uh, a few dozen kind of fellow indie you know game creators that are they're friends of mine and and we get together for an annual kind of retreat. Um, and it was it was really interesting. We had a lot of time to talk over over whiskey and and, and meals about uh, the state of the, the game scene, especially for indies. Uh, I think there is a lot of, I mean, I, I think this is a really conflicting time right now because on one hand, um, we still live, we're, we're, we're in many ways in a golden age now where any developer in the world, no matter how small, has a legitimate chance at creating a, a hit game, right? And that was not always the case. Anyone now, without any money, can download a free version of Unity, can go online, can download you know, SDKs and instructions from you know, Apple and Google and Steam and others about how to build games for those platforms, can build mm -hmm. a game, can release it in a store, and there's a chance, small chance, that it will become a viral hit, and next thing you know, millions of people are downloading and playing your game. That chance never existed until you know, four or five years ago. So we're in a golden era now where anyone can create a, a, a hit game. And that, that is amazing, and we should all recognize how amazing that is and be grateful for that <laughs> so that so yes that's still there on the flip side though you know there was a time when mobile games first launched and people thought this was going to be you know super easy and of course like all platforms it's never easy right there is you know more competition now for eyeballs and and and, and leisure time and installs than ever before and i think there's a very real sense that the 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 800 pound gorillas in the space, the supercells and the machine zones of the world, you know, who they, they can afford to drive up, you know, acquisition costs 
to the point where it's almost impossible to get into and, and market your games effectively. So if you're not lucky, if you don't get a viral success off the bat with you know, your initial launch, there's a sense of it's almost impossible to get, get recognized out there. I think that's a very real fear. I think it's a very real, real thing. Um, so you, 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 so you have that challenge. At the same time, you also have companies like Nexon, who I was talking with some folks from, who are mm -hmm. lamenting that uh, where is the next source of innovation going to come from? You know, they would love to find ways to find super creative teams and encourage them to come with, work with or work for or get published by studios like Nexon. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people out there who are looking for great content, great creative teams to partner with. Uh, I think there's a, there's a sense of, you know, there's a lot of crap out there, but there's a real lack of truly great games. Uh, and so I think if you can create truly great games, uh, you know, there are still, people will still be the path to your door. It's just, it's just hard to, so, so I, I, think, I, I, think, I think, you know, it, it, it's good time. Overall, we're still in this, in this golden age. And, and I also think that, you know, there's a lot of distractions out there. I think if you're a small developer, it can be very scary to try to say where do I in, where do I put my time, right? Do I invest right, in VR? Sure. Do I do I should I be buying an Oculus Dev Kit and going off and building VR games? You know, that's an early market, but there's a ton of buzz. Is that the future? Should I be focusing on where the market is today, which is you know smartphones and 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 consoles, and worry about that? Should I be, you know, P PC games on the, are having a resurgence now? Should I be being PC? That's exciting. You know, Steam just opened up. So on one hand, it's, again, more democratic than ever. On the other hand, it's gone from being a curated walled garden to now that it's kind of more open. It's actually harder, once again, to become noticed. Um, so that's kind of mixed blessing. Um, should I be trying to figure out totally crazy new platforms like watches or Alexa? You know, I've heard people doing Alexa games. Is that an interesting right. opportunity? Um, so I think I think there's this real sense of, of of almost too many choices, right? It's not as simple as it once was, which was you had three platforms and you picked one and that was it. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I think the, the developers I was talking to are generally in good spirits. I think there is a little bit of angst over just how do you get recognized, you know? And 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 what, and what if you build a great game that's critically acclaimed and just no one finds it, you know? And and that's really still the fear is how do you get your these 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 customers to 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 recognize you. Well, and of course, kind of going back to what you initially said, uh, it seems like something you believe is that those games with great back-end services and continual services uh, really do stand out, right? They're the ones that are at the top of the chart for three years. They're the ones that, you know, have that relationship with their audiences. It seems like that was a, a strong point you were making as well, kind of in the same vein. Yeah, I mean, just, just today, I, I'm a subscriber to uh, the Growth Insiders mailing list, which is run by Gaming Insiders. It's a great, great kind of hack, growth hacking list for anyone who's thinking about live ops. And just today, actually, just a couple hours ago, uh, an email came across from Space Ape Games, which is a pretty well-known mobile game developer. And they were saying that they have had, I think they were claiming $80 million worth of revenue. And the guy was saying in this, in this thread that they believe that between one-third and two-thirds of that $80 million revenue is directly attributable to effective live ops. Uh, and I was, I was like, wow! So I retweeted it right away because I'm like, that's a great, that's a great plug for kind of what we do, which is sure. recognizing that live ops, you know, is a really effective part of your, your your strategy. And I think if I were advising a game studio today, I would say you've got to have a great game, right? Your game has to be fun and compelling and exciting and good graphics and all the things you just got to have. Um, but I think yes, if you if you try to build a game as just a simple premium game, you're going to put it out there and forget about it. Um, you're absolutely 
leaving a lot of potential success on the table. And I would encourage everyone to think about, uh, not just because I'm at PlayFab. I mean, I mean, I started PlayFab because I saw this trend, not not you know trying to create the trend, which is saying, look, you know, if you if you can think about how you're going to operate in your game post-launch, if you can think about how you're actually going to kind of maintain it, then you are you know giving yourself a huge advantage compared to a lot of other teams out there. I, I mentioned Simpsons Tapped Out. It's interesting because um, this entire time I've, I've been telling this my kind of origin story, especially to investors and others for a long time, and I've always told the story the way I told it to you just now, which is here's this game. It launched. It was you know. They had to take it offline for four months. Very few companies would have had the resources or the deep pockets of an EA to survive. Many, if it had been an indie company and it had to do that, maybe they would have gone out of business, right? They'd, if they'd lost that additional four months. But I was talking recently to some guys at Fox who uh, were there when that game launched. And they said, yes, it was terrible that it went down for four months, but there was actually a silver lining there, which was that when the game launched back in April, they did not have a lot of content ready to go, right? So the game launched, but they hadn't really planned out the post-launch phase yet. And by by virtue of the fact that the game was offline for four months throughout the summer while they worked in the back end, the creative team was sort of sitting around twiddling their thumbs. And so what happened was when the game, so they ended up using the time to build new content. So when the game finally did launch or relaunch in August of, of whatever it was, 2012, um, they already had all this content kind of queued up and waiting in the wings. And he was saying that they believe now that that fact was one of the things that really made it successful. They were able to launch a game or relaunch it and have all this great content ready to go. So pretty much right away, you had a pretty steady cadence of new updates coming out. And I think that's actually really interesting because I think a lot of games, even games that are using a tool like PlayFab and that have committed themselves to a live ops strategy, don't pre-invest enough in that kind of post-launch content because they take a wait-and-see attitude. Well, I don't know if it'll be a success yet, so I'm going to wait and see if it's a success, and then I'll make these investments in better tools, better services, better live op, better content, whatever. The problem, of course, is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You launch a game, and people come, and you get an initial surge of traffic, but then because you maybe don't have a lot of live ops tools, you don't have your services in place, you don't have enough data analytics hooked up, you don't have a lot of content ready to go, you you end up kind of figuring out maybe after a couple weeks, oh, game's actually getting some success. But by the time you finally get around to getting all these new live ops pieces in place, your audience has already moved on. You know, you've already been forgotten about. And so it's it's tricky. But I would I would tell anyone these days, don't launch a game unless you actually have a post-launch strategy ready with content updates and live events and, and all the pieces it takes to kind of create that compelling, ever-changing post-launch phase. Well, that's really an intelligent point that you make, and that's something we haven't talked about much on the show. People are so focused on, you know, making their game and getting their game out there and getting to launch. People aren't always thinking about that post-launch game and the longevity of their project and what they're putting into. Um, so that's a, that's a really uh, insightful point that you bring up. So thank you for bringing that up uh, on the show. Well, uh, James, at the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share uh, a final piece of advice with the aspiring developers out there. Gather up all of your experiences, your thoughts, your stories. Uh, you've already shared a number of great pieces of advice. Is there anything else you want to send people home with? I guess. I mean, I think it's really... I'm a lifelong learner. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed, you know, reading everything get my hands on and, and you know, I, the fact that your audience is already listening to this podcast probably means you're, I'm preaching to the choir here um, because obviously the fact, the very fact that someone's hearing this means they're the kind of person who reaches out to 
you know, learn new things. Um, but I, I do think that uh, being humble and, and, and never thinking you have all the answers and being continually open to the, you know, there's the a famous Disney quote, you know, that, that um, he, even even the famous Walt Disney, you know, knew that the best ideas could, could come from anywhere. And uh, there's a famous story of him, you know, one day sitting around chatting with the janitors in his park and someone said, Walt, what are you doing talking to janitors? And he goes, well, they might have better ideas about, you know, what, what to do next than I do. And so I think there's a sense of you never know where the ideas come from and being open to feedback, whether it's from your, your you know, your, your girlfriend or boyfriend or your, your players or other developers, you know, just getting out there and getting feedback and being open to those, you know, new ideas is, I think, is a really, um, really powerful part. All the best designers and students I've ever met are all pretty humble and pretty open to, uh, to, to, to learning from others. It's really sound advice from James Gortzman, the CEO of PlayFab. Uh, James, you're clearly a very uh, intelligent guy. You know what you're doing. Uh, you've shared some fantastic stuff in this you know, 45 some minutes we've been chatting. So thank you very much for coming on the show and, uh, and speaking with me today. Sure, my pleasure. It's been uh, really fun to talk about this stuff. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, this has been the Indie Insider Podcast. It is presented by Blackshell Media, an indie publishing and marketing firm out there to help uh, aspiring developers such as you listeners uh, make the games you want to make and connect with audiences. Uh, of course, they also have an educational branch of their company, which is why this podcast exists. That's why I get to chat with people like James here and why I get to bring it to you. Uh, of course, if you want to be a part of the show, if you have thoughts, questions, you want to recommend somebody to be on the show, shoot me an email, logan at blackshellmedia.com, or find me on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. Uh, and of course, James, if people have been listening, they love what you have to say, if they're interested in PlayFab, how do they find you out on those interwebs? Yeah, come to playfab.com. It's all there. Uh, please you know, follow us on Twitter, uh, PlayFab Systems. Uh, follow us on uh, PlayFab Networks. Uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, PlayFab on Facebook. Um, but yeah, that, sign up for our newsletter on our website, I guess. There you go. This has been Indie Insider. We will see you next week. <laughs>